0: Hello and welcome to the Winner Circle. I'm your host, Dr. Sean. So let's continue the conversation on how you can win and how we can win together. Each week we have a guest on the show who not only cares about what's going on in our society, but who also has special expertise in helping us to win in an area. Today we're talking about heart health, specifically women's heart health because it's women's month, right? Uh, Mother's Day is in this month, Nurses Week, all sorts of focus on helping women to win. So during our focus on women's uh, heart health, today we have an expert, Dr. Hafiza Sheikh. She spends a lot of time, a lot of her professional time really, uh, focusing on this issue. So I'm happy to have her in the winner's circle. Dr. Sheikh. welcome.
1: Thank you for having me, Great Dr. Hubbard. Great to
0: see you here. Awesome. Dr. Sheik is a friend and colleague, we work together as well. Before we get really deep, Dr. Sheik, I wonder if you could uh, just share what took you into cardiology?
1: Cardiology is definitely a field that will only be growing in this country. Unfortunately, for many reasons, we have a lot of dietary issues and lifestyle issues that happen in in our country and in our culture here. Diabetes is on the rise. Obesity, as we know, is a full-on epidemic in the country. But unfortunately, those are all subtle risk factors that will end up leading to heart and vascular disease. So the more that we can work on those risk factors, the more that we can prevent heart disease and treat a a disease that really afflicts so many people. I'm sure everybody knows somebody in their family or within their friend circle that is afflicted by either hypertension, high cholesterol. And unfortunately, it can end poorly later in life with heart disease.
0: Wow, I think what I'm hearing you say is that a lot of our heart disease is a complication of things that we control, like our nutrition and what we're eating and just lifestyle.
1: That's correct. And, and a lot of those things, unfortunately, don't necessarily have signs or symptoms. They may be things that are just silently brewing under the surface, but they can culminate after years and decades worth of insults and injury to your blood vessels and basically create heart disease and heart disease is a very scary thing, but it is treatable and it is reversible to a certain degree as well.
0: Good news, good news. When we do start to experience symptoms, like the typical symptoms of heart disease, what do you hear mostly?
1: The most common symptoms that people will present is some sort of a pain in the chest, but honestly speaking, sometimes it's just more of a discomfort in the chest. And people even have a hard time describing it per se, but they do have this sense that there's either a tightness or heaviness or an uneasiness and that there could even be a difficulty breathing or a windedness or shortness of breath that can happen as well. Most of the time those symptoms will come up more when somebody is exerting themselves or doing something where the body is demanding more from the heart, but not always. And then since we're speaking about women's and women heart disease month, These are what we call typical symptoms. These are the symptoms where if you present to the emergency room or urgent care, it's almost like a a slam dunk that this person needs to be ruled out for cardiac disease. But the problem is not everybody has symptoms that read from the textbook. Mm. These things may be different. And typically females, diabetics also, they may not necessarily feel symptoms the exact same way. That's where it becomes more difficult.
0: I really wanted to understand those atypical symptoms that you're talking about, the ones that sometimes result in people not getting the diagnosis early on, uh, women in particular.
1: So some of the things that could present an atypical, which, which is difficult, right? Because it just means we know that it's not the run of the mill heaviness on my chest. I feel like an elephant is sitting on my chest, anything like that. But it could be something like even a unusual ache or a dullness or just a discomfort in general. Sometimes women also just present with a a fatigue. So for example, I can't do the same amount of activity or exertion that I could do before. I feel like I'm being weighed down. I feel like I have this fatigue that's kind of not really specific, but I know that something's not right. I've even had people present with just stomach discomfort, uh, just almost like a heartburn or anything like that. The craziest thing, unfortunately, that happened too was once I had somebody present with just a jaw or tooth pain, but because they had such poorly controlled diabetes, that was their only symptom. Mm. So it also goes to show that even if there's not necessarily a very overwhelming symptom, it still deserves an investigation. It still deserves to have that preventative
0: care workup. Mm
1: ounce of prevention, worth a pound of cure, and I think with heart and vascular disease, that holds strong as ever.
0: Sure, sure. That's concerning what you're saying, that fatigue, I mean, we're all feeling fatigued, and so it seems like it would be easy to miss. How do you rule in, and how do you make sure you're certain to diagnose heart disease and, let's say, a heart attack when it's there?
1: Good question, and I don't want to set off the alarm bells where everybody who feels fatigue now is worried that there could be heart disease, but at the same time, fatigue can come from a lot of different things, and again, does deserve investigation because it can be improved. The most important thing is obviously having that open dialogue with your healthcare provider. So you should be able to have a healthcare provider where you can discuss these things with and ask hey, what can be measured for me? What can be risk mitigated? So this way we can at least see what my risk is in the future of developing heart or vascular disease. Mm. So that includes things like having your blood pressure routinely checked. And actually I should start with even seeing your healthcare provider on a regular basis because a lot of times people may say, hey, I feel good. I don't have any illnesses. I don't take any medications. Why do I need to go? But again, only when you see a healthcare provider on a regular basis, once a year at least for an annual physical, you can have your blood pressure screened. You can say, hey, can you run my cholesterol numbers? Let me know, am I in good shape or is there some room for improvement here? Same thing, run my blood sugar. Diabetes runs in my family. Tobacco usage is a huge thing too. So, hey, I don't smoke right now, but I was smoking pretty decently for 20 years and I just wanna know, do my blood vessels look okay? Am I at risk for not just heart disease, but stroke or mini stroke in the future? but a lot of it does have to do with that, asking questions, being an advocate for yourself and having that open dialogue with your healthcare provider.
0: Makes sense, makes sense. So let's say I'm starting to have chest pain right now and it feels heavy and it's a little over here and I'm worried and I come to you. What's our course of action? What, what, do, you, what do you do? then?
1: So the first thing is obviously asking a lot of questions just around the nature of how the discomfort is. Like I said, more typically it'll happen when people are exerting themselves or doing any sort of activity, whether it's physical activity or even emotional stress can bring it on as well too. So it typically starts with a lot of questions between the healthcare provider and yourself as well too. But depending where things lay, sometimes you may end up needing a more thorough investigation in the setting of either an urgent care or an emergency room. In which case, some people can be hesitant and say, I don't have time for that. But, you know, unfortunately, I see a fair amount of heart attacks in the hospital, even in today's age, in 2021, Mm -hmm. with all the advanced technology Mm -hmm. that we have. I see a fair amount of heart disease, but I always wonder about the people that never made it to the hospital, mm. never had that investigation or sure. even were able to discuss what was going on. Mm. So that, that worries me, and that's why it's, it's worth it to have the work up and find out and ask questions. Mm-hmm. It's not a waste of time. Sure. It's being an advocate, it's being informed, and it's being aware of what's going on inside your own blood vessels and organs.
0: Mm, no kidding. Mm. So now we would have that discussion, we'd do an interview, and then what comes next?
1: Most providers will be able to do an EKG in the office, but not everybody necessarily. And or they may recommend, depending on the interpretation of the EKG, they may say, hey, this is better investigated in the hospital or in the emergency room as well. And again, it's always better to err on the side of caution because we Mm want to prevent as much damage and long-term consequences to our system as possible. And that means investigating early and making sure that things don't fall to the wayside. Often if we wait and say, oh, let me see if it happens again, let me see how I feel later, that could be time lost and time lost never comes back. Mm -hmm. So it's important to have these conversations, Mm -hmm. have these conversations with your loved ones, with Mm -hmm. the females in your life and the males as well too and just say, hey, have you had your cholesterol check lately? Do you know what your numbers look like? Where do you stand?
0: Sure. So now, if I end up in the emergency department, what will they be able to do there, or even the hospital in general, that they won't be able to do at urgent care or in the outpatient office?
1: The ER is definitely the superior out of those options between urgent care and the office, just because they can also do blood work. So they can do blood work to tell whether or not you're having an event right now or if you've had an event recently. It can be very revealing. And then of course, if they feel like things are looking more higher risk, they may say, hey, we want you to see a specialist. So they may even call a cardiologist or specialist down to see you in person at that time. And nothing replaces obviously being able to see somebody in person, again, have that history taken around how you've been feeling, And then also the luxury of having blood work and an ekg done in a hospital setting
0: perfect Hmm. so the blood work and ekg and those diagnostics are they pretty sensitive i mean if i'm having a heart attack will they definitely ring true for showing i'm having a heart attack
1: It'll show for that moment in time. It's not uncommon where sometimes you'll need to stay for a second set of blood work because what happens with the heart enzymes is there is a little bit of a time delay. So for example, you could be having a heart attack and that initial set of blood work could be negative, but a follow-up set of blood work, which is typically done after three to four hours, that may be the set of blood work that actually reveals a heart attack. So there is a value in staying for an investigation, even if it's just in the ER, not necessarily getting admitted. Mm-hmm. But of course, all these judgments can be based on putting everything together, the whole picture, your medical history, your pattern of what you've been feeling with your symptoms and the results of these diagnostic tests. Mm-hmm. So if you don't end up needing to stay in the hospital, you may be scheduled for a stress test. Okay. So a stress test typically is a nice diagnostic way to detect whether or not you're at risk of a heart event mm. in the near future. I see. That's something that you could get done while you're in the hospital then, or they may recommend that you get done when you're out of the hospital. Again, depending on the constellation of everything going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So the stress test basically recreates that exertional scene and evaluates how does my heart and my coronary arteries work under that kind of pressure?
1: That's correct. That's correct. So so it's usually is done in a treadmill in Europe and other places. They actually do it in bicycles as well, too. Mm-hmm. But it's a way to induce the heart rate being stressed in terms of cardiac activity and doing cardio. Now, some people are not eligible to go on the treadmill, say they've got a bum knee or they've got other limitations physically that wouldn't allow them to be on a treadmill there is even a medicine type of stress test that can be done too so there's options for everybody in the appropriate manner
0: okay perfect perfect so now if we have plaque in our arteries and that plaque has developed from our habits and we do end up having a heart attack because the blood flow can't get to the cardiac muscle does that muscle come back or what happens
1: it all depends it all depends and this is where time becomes critical again So sometimes people are lucky, a heart attack could either be small or it could have been caught really early in time, may have been short-lived enough that the heart muscle doesn't suffer. But otherwise the heart is made up of these muscles. Muscles are sensitive to circulation, they're sensitive to oxygen. So this means that if there is a symptom that maybe somebody was feeling but it lingered on for two days, four days before somebody made it to get medical attention. The heart muscle may have been suffering during that time, and a lot of times in that situation you may end up with a weakness of the heart that may or may not come back in the future. It all depends, and honestly, we don't even know sometimes. It's just a matter of really good medical therapy, acting as soon as possible to make sure that the time is minimized, that the heart was suffering without the circulation, and then good follow-up surveillance to see how the heart is doing. But if there's one thing I can stress, it's time. Time is of the essence, and in the medical world, we say time is muscle.
0: Sure. Hmm. So we've been focusing on the problem a lot. I'm aware of that all the time, because we like to focus on how people can win and enjoy optimal health. And we've been talking about disease, which I think is important. We wanted to turn our discussion to what happens after we survive. Hopefully we're survived and we're able to start to work on heart health now and winning. So the question is, let's say we've had this event and now we know. And what are the first steps basically after heart injury? Now let's say that first couple days, first week or so.
1: Yeah, the first step is really just taking that time to recover and process everything that happened, honestly, because sometimes people may be home now, discharged from the hospital, and they may be on a lot of new and unfamiliar medications. So the most important thing to start off with is just understanding those medications, why you're on them, how long you'll be on some of them, and then just making sure that you're doing well from that standpoint. And again, that's where advocacy comes in. So if you feel like you're getting dizzy or lightheaded from one new medicine or anything like that, calling your doctor, maybe getting the blood pressure rechecked either at home or in the office, and just making sure that you're able to stick with the same recipe of medications that was recommended for you. If not, it's important to not just you know stop taking a certain medicine, but discussing it. In fact, after a heart attack, stopping certain medicines can actually just lead to another precipitous heart attack, so you have to be very careful from that realm. So medical therapy is the most important thing to start off with, and then after that it's discussion in terms of when physical activity can begin and how it can begin again. So we lean a fair amount on something called cardiac rehab, which is a very specialized type of therapy, and it's specific for people who have had some sort of a heart event of all different variety. But it's a controlled setting where we can say and you know typically it's not right the week after a heart attack but it's a few weeks later after your cardiologist clears you to do this of course and it's a very light and graduated recipe basically of exercise that's done in a supervised facility where somebody's actually monitoring your blood pressure and heart rate so it's as safe as can be but the thought is, after a heart attack, well, I, you know, I want to be out there. I want to be able to do physical exertion again, yes. and that's what your healthcare provider wants too. We want you back out there having your quality of life. You know, back when you asked why I went into cardiology, besides the fact that I think it's very prevalent in, in our society, it's a very treatable disease. So this means people should be able to return to a good quality of life and good outcomes afterwards. But again, it comes in a very graduated and mm-hmm. safe way because it's, it's not uncommon uh, a lot of times after bypass surgery or after a heart attack, people can get a little bit depressed. It's normal, it's, you know, I thought I was leaving a good quality of life, now I find myself on four medications and I'm home on a sofa, what, what's going on? What's right. gonna be my quality of life? Mm. So that's why good medical therapy and good physical activity can really return that quality of life and make sure that you can feel normal again.
0: Mm. Excellent, excellent, that does sound hopeful that there's a path forward. Regarding those medications, is there a pretty, let's say, standard cocktail or most common set of types of medications that people take after heart attack?
1: There are. One of the most important ones is aspirin. And it's usually a baby aspirin, just a low-dosage aspirin, because it has a way to prevent any further clots within the heart circulation from forming again. And it's preventative for stroke and mini-stroke as well, too, in the future. Cholesterol medications are another huge part and you know traditionally that cholesterol medications will keep the bad cholesterol under control and try to help control those levels But beyond that, beyond the numbers, cholesterol medications actually have a huge effect on reducing inflammation within the body. So this means even for immeasurable ways that we can't quantitate, we know that it actually reduces the incidence of having a future heart attack or a future stroke or mini stroke in the future. Mm. In addition to that, there are usually one, maybe more blood pressure medications, which Help with the blood pressure but not just that they help the heart not have to work as hard mm-hmm. because the one thing is we want the heart to not feel stressed now that we know that the heart was in this stressful situation and suffered from this heart attack okay mm-hmm. so that's where things start and then okay. obviously if there's other medical conditions then the better controlled they are the better somebody will do overall mm-hmm. that's things like diabetes or thyroid disease or anything of that nature
0: mm-hmm. perfect perfect so then there's the the big elephant in the room you know our nutrition uh, or one of the big elephants uh, how do you recommend people start adjusting after that and what sort of adjustments do you recommend
1: uh, unfortunately with the <laughs> with the trend of our diets in this country there's there's a lot of adjustments that sometimes need to be made which again comes back to the prevention which we've talked about a few times as a common thread but a lot of times it's, uh, again, a discussion with your healthcare provider and saying, hey, where do I need the most room? Where do I need the most improvement to happen in my diet? Now there's a lot of interesting diets out there. The best diet is the one that works for you and works for the goals that need to be achieved. Now for some people, it's more of a strict weight loss situation. For some people, it's a triglyceride, For some people, it's a blood sugar, carbohydrate reduction. And it really varies. The one diet that is recommended just because it does have some evidence based behind it in terms of large control studies is the Mediterranean diet, just because we know that it does help reduce outcomes. But you know, I'm not the type of physician that's gonna tell you to go home and measure a quarter cup of your lentils and a half a cup of your broccoli. I, I think that Diets and recommendations need to be something that you can live with long-term. Sure. So that's why even if you peek at some of the guidelines behind the Mediterranean diet and kind of can ascribe to some of those principles, even that will be beneficial. Mm. But a lot of it is, is common sense that is common to a lot of the big diets that are out there. Things like keeping the carbohydrates to a minimum, no more than 25% of your diet or your plates, making sure that half of your diet is fruits and vegetables. Reducing your saturated fats, making sure that your proteins are lean as well. And, you know, which doesn't get mentioned enough, making sure you're drinking enough water.
0: Oh, wow. Excellent. Mm. Dr. Sheikh, I have to uh, tell you about when I first started practicing neurology as an attending, and I'd see people who were having TIAs and stroke, and I'd be having a lot of discussions just like what we're having today because they're both artery events, right? I mean, mm-hmm. stroke is an artery event, heart attack is an artery event. But I'd be having a discussion with our cardiologist colleague, and the big one was, are we going to use aspirin or Plavix? And so we're grill. Anyway, I'd be having this discussion, I'd go from the second floor where I'd have it, and then I'd go to the third floor, I'd have that discussion with many of us. And it did start to occur to me that, wow, we're just talking mostly about a few medications, you know, just a few. and. Um, it just seemed like we didn't have a lot, overwhelmingly, a lot of options just medically to um, treat these conditions. So I started to look, you know, where's this plaque coming from anyway, you know? And invariably it did take me to nutrition. And I started to make changes myself, Great. <laughs> you know, personally. Great. Many years ago I started introducing a lot more vegetables, a lot more whole grains. It just really affected me, my work and seeing what people were, what risk factors they were having when they came to the hospital. Yes. And our limited, let's say, um, list of medicines. they are just multiple types, like what we've been talking. So the big question is, uh, what does Dr. Shake do? Um, Given your experience, how do you promote your own personal cardiac health?
1: I proceed with caution, and I'll, I'll tell you why. It's not just because, like yourself, I see it every day, but I've got family history. And not just family history for heart disease, but family history for diabetes and for high cholesterol. So I, I'm scared, I'll, I'll be honest. Um, so I try to really be cautious. I try to keep things well-balanced. But the other big component of that too is making sure that there's good cardio activity built into my exercise regimen as well. So the answer is the golden rule, everything in moderation. You know, I think we all know that when we're indulging or having that second dessert of the day or that second serving of rice, we know it's not the right thing, but sometimes it's our own cultural or behavioral ways that we're just used to having that in. But it is all about moderation and building in. One of the recommendations that I follow, that I give to a lot of my patients too, is you know, oftentimes if there is healthier options like fruits, vegetables, nuts, leave it on the counter in the kitchen, leave it there in front of you. So this way it comes into your visual field. Mm-hmm. And maybe as you're walking through the house or your office or wherever you spend most of your daytime, it'll just become a natural thing. Just that those whole grains, vegetables and fruits just kind of become part of your, of your diet. Sure. Unfortunately, everybody leads busy lives. So right now the most... Convenient thing that happens to be is outside fast food. Mm. But, um, you know, unfortunately, again, if we can kind of train ourselves to have those healthier options available, and if something's not good and you know you don't need it, just don't bring it in the house. Mm. Once it's in the house, you know it's going to make its way to to you. I, that's how I feel. Right. So I just try to not bring it in the house. Right. And um, make sure you're drinking enough water because a lot of times, Hunger gets mistaken as a, you know, for thirst actually too. Mm-hmm. So just making sure there's enough water in the diet. Makes so, sense. Makes sense. Um, so I have to ask you a question. Do I get to do that? Sure. So as a question, since you made those dietary changes to some more whole grain options yes. too, did you feel a difference? Did you feel like you had a difference in your energy, your mood, activity levels, anything like that?
0: I did, and I made several changes. Really, I have to give some of the credit to my dad. Also, both of my grandparents on both sides had terrific problems, really, mm-hmm. with um, heart disease, tobacco use on both sides, obesity, diabetes on both sides. And but my dad, who's 75, has none of that. Um, he sprints uh, throughout the day right now at 75. So he's been a great example. And then that- I've been trying to. Uh, carry that tradition on and improving our health, especially for the ones that are following. When I made changes, I felt the energy um, gradually come on, my palate changed. and But I, has to, I have to do what you recommended though. Ice cream is challenging for me. So if I bring in a big cart, I'm going to eat it, especially if it has anything crunchy and salty in it, <laughs> forget it, it's going down, you know. So I, I just bring, you know, half a pint in, one of those small ones, and I've learned to just take a tablespoon that's my serving Mm -hmm. and I'm not going to put any in a bowl unless it's like you know weekend or we're celebrating something that's great so I've been making changes the ones that we recommend our patients so
1: that's great you mentioned something very important there too about your palate changing yes which is what happens so for example if you start reducing salt reducing sweets when you do have it it's not even interesting to you anymore That's right. just because you're so used to the change mm-hmm. that you've made. So kudos to you for acting and being proactive in your family history. That's awesome, Sean.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for coming in and sharing everything that you have shared from a high level uh, cardiologist perspective right on down to our personal uh, kitchen and <laughs> our, our lifestyle. I appreciate your, uh, your input here. It's been tremendous.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Great conversation.
0: Absolutely. And to you in the winter circle. Thanks for joining in. That was a great discussion. We've been having with Dr. sheik I'm sure we all benefited from that. And think about this as we go into our weekend and our week, when we're having our celebrations, when we're talking about how we're going to take care of ourselves, our wives, our daughters, who are mothers and our mothers, let's take care of our families, guys and look forward to more discussions like this where we can talk about how we can win and keep winning. Take care guys, see you next week.